0: Listening to the teaching podcast of Grace Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. for more information about our church, please visit I always like opportunities where things happen in worship, and you can use that as kind of a teaching moment and I was uh you know, Pastor Jim just kind of got up and gave a prophetic word, and see, if you don't know that, you just kind of think, oh, he just kind of, you know, had some random thoughts that he shared, and really, uh, that, that is what the prophetic is, is the prophetic is that, that the Spirit of God within you just kind of begins to speak things to you, and, and Jim was obedient in that he kind of got up before you and said, here's what he felt the Spirit of God was was speaking about, and I was one of those persons that that word was for just a few moments ago. I, you know, was kind of what he described as something that, you know, I've been, has kind of been happening and I've been dealing with in my life, and so as he spoke that, I was able to, you know, just acknowledge, yes, Lord, I'm there, Um, and so as he prayed, I was able to receive that, and that's the beauty of the prophetic, is God knows our hearts. He knows what's going on in our lives and then he just begins to speak to that. And the beautiful thing about the prophetic too is, is that uh, oftentimes our, uh, you know, our experience maybe or our understanding of the prophetic is is that it's condemning you know that it's thus saith the lord and there's hell and fire and brimstone with it and you know you kind of walk out feeling guilty and and full of shame and condemn that's not prophetic that's pathetic but it's not prophetic The beautiful thing about the prophetic is, is scripture says it is for your exhortation. It is to comfort you. It is to encourage you. So I'm just curious, how many others in here this morning, as Jim gave that word, did you feel that was for me? Yeah. I know, and oftentimes we just kind of think, well, you know, pastor, you know, you you deal with things like that? I mean, you know, you're not perfect. No. Is my wife in here? I'm a lot further along and closer to it than she is, you know. But. <laughs> now, we just keep that amongst ourselves, right, right? What happens in here stays in here. But that's the beauty of the prophetic And you know what else is also amazing about the prophetic is that it is one of, I mean, go back and read 1 Corinthians 14. It is one of the evangelistic tools that God will use in the life of an unbeliever. Because oftentimes, an unbeliever, someone that doesn't know God, they will come in and they are bearing a burden that no one knows about but them. Or they they may be, you know, entertaining a thought that is from the enemy. That could be for their destruction. And, and someone will get up and they will give a prophetic word that speaks exactly to the heart, to the situation, to the thought that that person's going through. And you know what God does with that? He uses it to reveal himself. All of a sudden that person thinks, nobody knew I was dealing with that. No one knew that was happening in my life. There is a God. And it just opens them up to that. That's why Paul says, pursue the prophetic. And so I, you know, my, my heart has always been, I would love to see the prophetic just happening and, and us flowing more and more and more in that because God uses it just in a multitude um, of ways. It, it's a way really, again, to build up, to encourage, to exhort the body of Christ. It's also just really a way for unbelievers to really kind of encounter God um, in a way they don't expect it. And so, again, just taking that opportunity, just putting that out there before you, just want to teach on that, you know, because, again, I just think as we move and flow more and more comfortably in that, I just see God using that um, in our midst. So that's, that's great. Awesome. Thank you, Jim. Uh, this morning, I want to just, uh, we're going to conclude uh, a series. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of concluding it. I kind of think I've got, like, maybe one more bullet in, the, in this uh, chamber on this series, but I don't know, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'm going to pray about it. I get to go turkey hunting this afternoon, starting tomorrow, so I'll have a lot of time to kind of think about that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, my my plan maybe is to kind of conclude it today. Uh, I don't know. We've been kind of talking on these last few weeks on big church. And again, I'm not talking about us because we're a big church. I'm just talking about big church because the church is a big deal uh, to Jesus. And so uh, before I want to get into that, I want to just kind of take a moment. I want to just share with you just a wonderful, just an incredible opportunity uh, that will be happening here next Sunday morning during our worship services, since Praise Community Church began almost about thirteen, uh, well, twelve years ago, I'm coming up. We're coming up on our twelfth year, uh, believe it or not. We have never, ever had the opportunity to do baptisms in the context of our worship services. We've always had to kind of wait until warmer weather, and then we've tried to schedule a time where we can go out to Big Blue. Last year, I think we went over and did it in uh, Godfrey's pool. Um, But again, we were really always kind of you know, just dependent on weather and good weather. I know one year we tried to do baptisms, and it was so cold that summer, or rainy, that every time we had one scheduled, we had to cancel it. And that year, we never got to do any baptisms. And it's always kind of been... Just, you know, I wish we had a baptismal here in the church that we could do this on a Sunday morning, do it in the context of of the body of Christ, Um, and so it's just been something we've never really been able um, to do, and so... uh, Several months ago, we were able to finally uh, purchase a portable uh, indoor baptistry. It's here now. Um, We've kind of, we had it set up and staff was swimming in it um, the other day. Um, But again, it's ready to go and we're going to be able to do this next Sunday morning at both services uh, for anyone who would like to be baptized. Now, I know oftentimes when we talk on baptism, you know, there's just some questions that kind of come to people's mind, you know, and one of those questions is, who should get baptized? Um, And again, so let me take just a couple minutes. I kind of want to address some of those questions, um, and, and then we'll uh, conclude our series uh, this morning. Jesus' final command uh, to his disciples. You know, it's following the resurrection, uh, he's been with them, he's revealed himself to them uh, through the resurrection, and just as he's about to be ascended uh, to the right hand of the Father, he gives some parting uh, instructions to the disciples. And there in Matthew 28 19, uh, He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus makes it very, very clear uh, that baptism is intended for people who are his disciples and who have made Jesus Lord and Savior over their lives. Now, John Wesley, because I kind of come from a a Wesleyan background uh, and love John Wesley, John Wesley uh, calls baptism one of God's means or God's channels of grace. And in other words, baptism is really one of the ways uh, God's grace can be manifested and fulfilled in our lives. Much like when when we take communion. Communion is a channel, it is a means by which God is able to manifest his grace to us in a tangible way. And so baptism also is one of those means of God's grace. Now, baptism was an outward demonstration or or an outward act that really signified uh, an inner spiritual working of God's spirit in our lives through salvation. And so we've been in our series kind of on big church, and we've been talking really about how the first Christians in the first church in the first century and how they kind of function. Now, it's interesting that in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches his very first sermon in the history of this movement that Jesus came to launch. And as Peter preaches this very, very powerful message, on um, that day, he's talking about the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the sinfulness of the people, and it's really a great sermon. You, should, you know, get a chance, go back in and read that. Uh, and at the very end of his sermon, the people's response to Peter in verse 37 is, What shall we do? I was listening to a teaching this week by Graham Cook and Graham Cook said, that is one of the best questions you can ever ask. Don't ask why questions, why this, why me, why now. He said, all that does is makes you a victim. That's just victim mentality. And he says, the question you need to ask regardless of what you're going through, no matter what God's doing in your life, you just simply ask that question, what shall I do now? What do I do with this God? And so again, this is the question the people put to Peter, what shall we do in response to your message? And Peter in verse 38, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here Peter is teaching them on baptism, and he says, you know, baptism really needs to uh, be followed After we have repented of our sins and have been forgiven. And really what it does is it really begins to set you up to receive uh, the work, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So again, baptism, water baptism is the outward sign of a work that has taken place in your inner being. Uh, it, It signifies we have been forgiven. Now, the Apostle Paul, he speaks of baptism there in Romans 6, beginning in verse 3, and he says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We therefore were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. And so again, the the analogy there, and we often use this when we're doing the baptisms, is because it's just a powerful analogy. We will tell people, when you're kind of in that baptismal fount, when we lower you into the water, it really is an analogy that, that that old self, that old man, that sinful nature that has been cut away from you through salvation, that old nature is being buried. So we're kind of in the water, we're just kind of taking you down to a spiritual grave. And what that does is is that kind of just, uh, is is it illustrates again the death that Christ died for us, and when we bring you up out of the water, what we're doing is we're bringing up that new person, that new creation, in Christ. We're resurrecting you out of that water. That's, that's why this is so powerful, because of what it really illustrates about our faith. So baptism is, again, it's something Jesus and uh, the apostles required for new believers. So if you've made a profession of faith, and the, the, you know, my point in all of that is, is if you've made a, a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you've never followed that up with baptism, You need to do that. That really is the next step in in your spiritual walk. You, You need to follow that up with baptism. Some of you may be thinking, well, I was baptized as a baby. Do I need to be baptized again? My response to that is yes, absolutely, without a doubt. The reason I say that is because as a baby, you weren't repenting of sins. You weren't asking Jesus into your heart because you didn't even understand any of that. You didn't even need you didn't even know you needed to do any of that. Someone else made that decision on your behalf. Oh, here's, you know, our beautiful little baby. Let's go get our baby baptized. And I you've been in here for infant baptisms. I always tell you, this is more about the parents pledge. It is their, what they are taking a vow to do. I don't ask the baby anything because if I did, I wouldn't get any response from them. This is about the parents. When you become born again, when you make that profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, it now becomes your decision, your faith, and the best way to follow that up is through um, baptism. Well, I was baptized as an adult in another church. Do I need to do that here? No. Once you've been baptized as an adult, uh, we, we receive that. We recognize that here. We're not saying, you know, you have to be baptized uh, in every church. The only reason I said that is because there are churches out there that would tell you yes to that. You know, because our baptism is the baptism that counts. I don't believe that. Um, but there are churches out there that do, and I respect them. Um, for that, but we don't, we don't teach, we don't preach that um, here. However, um, I remember being, uh, my adult, my initial adult baptism was at Lake Geode in Burlington. Uh, I was in college at the time. I had come to be a Christian. I had come to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and, and I knew, I mean, you know, just very, very clearly God spoke to me that I needed to be uh, baptized I needed to be immersed um, uh, because of that decision. And so I went uh, to the church I was attending at that time, and we went to Lake Geode in Burlington, and I was baptized there. I have been baptized several other times beyond that, and I'll tell you why. Because there just are times where God will take me to a deeper level of faith, a deeper level of revelation in Him. I just feel like I'm walking in the things of God at a whole different level. And so, oftentimes, I'm looking for a way to kind of acknowledge that or, or to, you know, kind of just um, just respond to that somehow. Baptism is one of those ways for me. When, when I just feel like God is just doing... You know, an an incredible thing in my life, and I just feel like, man, I just feel like I've come to a whole new level. Uh, There's just something in me that wants to respond to God in that. And there are a number of ways we can do that. For me, baptism is just one of those ways. So maybe you're here this morning, and you, you were baptized, you know, as an adult, 20 years ago and you're just not the same person even though you were born again then you're just not the same person now that you were 20 years ago and maybe you've been looking for a way just to say God you know man you have been so awesome And and God, I just feel like you've just done so much in my life. And again, one of the ways that we can just respond and give thanks to God uh, is through baptism. Now, I came out of a denomination um, that that believed you only were baptized once. If you were baptized again, that you were somehow undoing the grace of God. I don't find any biblical, um, I just don't find any biblical reason. For thinking that way, we we don't do communion one time and then never do it again. It is a means. It is a channel of God's grace, and and I just feel like you know baptism and communion are the are the two sacraments that we that we celebrate that we acknowledge here at Praise Community Church. And so sometimes we just need to respond um, out of that. So again, I just want to you know get put that out there for you. Uh, so if you feel like God is speaking to you and, and really feel like you, you want to be baptized um, next Sunday, please see either Pastor Mark or myself following service. We've got some information on on a piece of paper we'll give you so you can kind of come next Sunday uh, prepared uh, to do that. But again, I'm just so excited to be able to finally be able to do this in the context of our worshiping community on a Sunday morning and not have to be trying to you know figure out a, a perfect day uh, to get over to the lake or to somebody's pool. And, and I'm not against that. We still may do that on occasion. It's just nice to be able to have it where we can do it here uh, in the context of the, of the church. So again, uh, if, if that's you, just come up and see one of us. Let us know so again we can make all of the proper arrangements we need to for next Sunday. Amen? Awesome, looking forward to it. Hey, these last few weeks, we've been kind of really looking uh, again at the uh, church Jesus came to launch there in that very first century. And we've been focusing really on, and and last Sunday was kind of the climax. It was really uh, just the, the ultimate celebration of that very, very simple event that really kind of unified, it galvanized the very first church there in the very first century. And it was around that message that Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead. Now one of the amazing facets about the early church, and really just the church in general, uh, from the very beginning in the book of Acts to this uh, present day, is again the varied response of people to Jesus and this very simple yet powerful and profound message of his life, his death, his atonement for mankind's sin, his resurrection from the dead to eternal life. And what's amazing to me is some heard that message and they chose to respond and to embrace that message while others did not. You couple that with the fact that the vast majority of people here in the United States, they believe in God or a concept of God. But you mention the name Jesus and things quickly turn interesting. Ever had that experience? You talk about God and everybody is fine and comfortable talking about God because they've got a concept about God. It may not be biblical, but it's a concept about God that they have come across and they're, they're okay with that. But you start talking about Jesus and all of a sudden things get really kind of uncomfortable or, you know, their end of conversation. From the very beginning of the church there in the book of Acts, the birth of the church that Jesus came to launch, again, you remember, uh, part of the history of that is Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. I mentioned that earlier. He goes and he preaches his first sermon and over 3,000 people respond to the message and they join this movement. Have you ever thought about the people who heard that message and never responded, were not convinced or heard the message and just simply chose to reject it. The New Testament is filled with stories of those who chose to respond to the message of the good news and those who didn't. I mean, we see that clearly played out. You remember in the story of the two thieves who were crucified alongside Christ I mean, you, you clearly see that in its starkest terms. One turns to kind of mocking Jesus. The other one kind of turns and, and asks Jesus for mercy. Again, why is it that some believe and others do not? Same message, different response. The story of Stephen is one of those beginning there in Acts chapter 6, and it really highlights, again, the response of one of the multitudes who are hearing this very simple yet very powerful message. And again, let me just give you kind of a really quick recap of what was happening in the Books of Act, uh, book of Acts leading up to Stephen. A few weeks ago, we talked about the religious leaders, how they had drugged the apostles before the Sanhedrin, and the religious leaders warned them, stop talking about the resurrection, stop talking about Jesus. And then they make the, uh, the, the point, and then they kind of just take them, and they have the disciples, the apostles, flogged, which basically meant they were whipped within an inch of their lives. And after beating and warned They set them free. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 41, again, it gives us their response. These disciples who, again, had just been flogged. I mean, they've got to be physically hurting. They leave there, and it says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing. Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace. For the name, day after day in the temple courts. and like I said, it's not like they went somewhere else. they went right back into the same courts where they had gotten arrested and were being persecuted. And it says they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now what is interesting, and, and here's my point? We don't find them huddling together going, how can bad things happen to good people? Where's God? If God really loved me. That is a pretty typical American response to some of what we see happening and unfolding there in that very first church. We don't find them doing that. Rather, we find them stepping out in an incredibly bold and courageous way to say, in spite of what you said to us, in spite of what you did to us, we will not stop talking about what we have seen A resurrected Savior, and we will not stop talking about that message that He was sent from God the Father to be the Savior of the world. That's pretty powerful. Well, as the weeks ensued, you know that the church just continued to explode. I mean, it was increasing, it was growing, and it just kind of begins to eventually kind of overflow outside of Jerusalem and into the surrounding areas. And things got so big and so complicated that they kind of had to go back and begin organizing um, the church. They had to kind of start bringing some hierarchy and structure to the local church, which they needed to do. And other leaders began to surface, they began to take on responsibility, and one of those men, one of those leaders was a man by the name of Stephen. And we don't know much about Stephen, other than he surfaced as basically one of the first deacons there in the early church. Stephen was about... You know, just very, very comfortable speaking loudly and boldly uh, about his faith. And because he was not one of the apostles, the religious leaders, particularly the Sanhedrin, thought that maybe because he's not an apostle, we'll kind of just take advantage of the situation and we're going to try to take him out. So they have him arrested And they paid people to say things about Stephen that weren't true. And in that, Stephen kind of rises up and he begins to give a defense. And his whole defense is kind of written out in the uh, book of Acts in chapter 7. It's probably one of the longest um, sermons or messages uh, in the Bible. And he takes his Jewish audience. What's really interesting is he kind of takes them back into the Old Testament, and he kind of just begins to explain to them through the Old Testament uh, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He's the one that God promised he was going to send to redeem uh, his people. And so he just gives this very powerful witness and testimony to the person, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the end of his message... People are so stirred up, they are so agitated, they are so angry that they drag him out of the city and they stone him to death. Now again, my point here being, contrast the response of Stephen's preaching to the response of Peter's preaching. Again, there are times we kind of lose sight of this in our American version of Christianity. What you see in both of those messages is there's a very intense response, both positive and negative, to this message of Christianity. And those disciples were willing, gladly willing to take whatever response came from this very simple yet powerful profound message of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And as a result, Stephen becomes the first martyr of the New Testament church. And as a result of Stephen's death, and because there was no negative consequence, there was no pushback from the Romans toward the Jewish religious leaders, basically what that did is he said, hey, we got away with this with Stephen. We can get away with this doing this to other people. And so it, it empowered, it emboldened The enemies of the early church there to just begin a widespread persecution. And they were naming names and they were going after people. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tells us a period that was just an intense persecution that really broke out there against the early church and the early Christians. And Luke introduces it there in Acts 1. Uh, He says, and Saul was there, and there being at the stoning of Stephen, giving approval of his death. On that day, a great, I mean an intense persecution, I don't think like anything we've ever understood or seen, broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, which again was in fulfillment of the words that Jesus said. Spoke there in Acts 1, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the persecution of the New Testament church there, of those early believers, caused them to kind of just disperse, and they fled, they left, and they went to other destinations to avoid being persecuted. They left Jerusalem because, again, The the persecution was so intense. And then Acts 2 continues. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. That's that Greek word ecclesia. I spoke on that uh, when we opened this series. Again, that meant gathering, that assembly, that congregation. And going from house to house... Saul dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, the reason they went house to house is because that's where the churches first started. They they met in homes. So Saul begins to put this full court press. And he begins to kind of just go after anyone who was a part of this movement that Jesus came to launch. and And he just goes after and tracks down as many Christians as he could find. Again, Saul's goal and mission, in his thinking, Paul's a very religious man. I mean, he's not secular. I mean, he is a Pharisee. We've talked about them. I mean, he was the best of the best. I mean, he, he was a professional do-gooder for God. And so Saul's goal and mission, he thinks he's serving God. He, he thinks he's weeding out heresy in the church And he's going to put an end to this movement once and for all. And Luke tells us this went on for three years, unchecked. For three years, Saul continues to persecute the church, arrest Christians, and have them thrown in jail. Now again, many of these Christians were eventually put to death. And while he is persecuting and trying to suppress and trying to squelch this movement, what's happening? The church is exploding. It is increasing. It is expanding. More and more and more people are coming to embrace this message of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection from the dead. And basically, Saul would kind of go kick over an anthill and the ants would scatter without knowing it or intending to by persecuting the church and Christians. Saul actually ended up driving the message and the movement of Jesus out into the countryside, outside of Palestine, and into a desperate, needy, waiting, Gentile world. Saul was trying to both contain and kill the message and the movement of Christianity, but it only had the opposite, the exact opposite result of what he hoped or intended. God took the evil that Saul was doing and that the other religious leaders were inflicting upon the church and the first Christians, and he brought forth a wider spread of that very simple, profound message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to bless and redeem those who had not heard. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, therein lies, again, one of the greatest, maybe one of the most complex mysteries of God, how God uses evil, how God uses suffering. Something that God doesn't intend to happen something that God is not the author of, but how God uses pain and suffering, persecution to bring forth and to produce his ultimate plan, which is to save mankind. The fact of the matter is very, very, very bad things can happen to very, very good people, and God and God alone can use those very, very, very bad things to accomplish some very, very, very godly things. To me, that is amazing. Very, very, very unexplainable things can happen to people who are extraordinarily faithful, and God is not rocked by that. God is not changed by that. He's not caught off guard by that. But rather, God is able and he is committed to take that and to use it, even when he is not the author of it, to bring forth goodness, blessings, and keep his ultimate will on track and moving forward. So in spite of all of the evil, the suffering, the intense persecution of the early church that Christians went through, not once. I read, I looked, I peeked this week. Not once in the whole book of Acts do you find the response of those early Christians who were under all of this intense persecution, huddled together. They're not afraid. Oh, God has lost control pray that maybe god doesn't love them anymore thinking that maybe god had been removed or voted off the throne we don't find any of those type of american responses or complaints what we find again is a very bold a courageous an unapologetic response and commitment to this very simple, yet powerful, profound, life-changing message that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He died for our sins. His blood was shed for our forgiveness. And God proved that he was who he said he was and that he accomplished all that he said he would by raising him from the dead. It's one of the primary reasons that the message of the gospel got outside Palestine and eventually spread. All over the world. It was really the beginning of the global church. It was really the beginning of the Gentile church. And Paul was one of the chief apostles who brought that message to the Gentile world. Consequently, even though the persecution heated up intensely around the city of Jerusalem, Christians all around there simply began to thrive and to multiply. And Christianity spread and spread and spread. There is intense persecution going on right now with Christians in the Middle East. What are they trying to do? Get rid of Christianity. Let's stomp this out. Let's squelch this. We got to get rid of these people. Little do they know they're only causing that message to get bigger and stronger and louder and all it's going to do is it's just going to cause the very thing they're trying to stamp out to explode. Thanks be to God. The Apostle Paul captures this spiritual principle in 8, Romans 8:28 8, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Man, if you're here this morning and you love God and you are called according to his purpose, I can tell you this morning, regardless of what you're going through, God wants to take that and God wants to begin to work and to weave that into your life. And God wants to take what maybe is intended to be evil on someone else's part against you. God wants to take that and flip that. Only God can. And, and some of you this morning are in that, in that place where you're feeling that, that pressure, you're feeling that persecution, you're feeling that suffering. And, and maybe you're tempted to just kind of wonder, God, what are you doing with this? Where are you? God's there. And if you love him and you're called according to his purpose, God says, we know, you know, I know. God knows. He's going to take this and he's going to work it He's going to flip it, and he's going to use it for good to bless you. Let me just, I'm going to close with this. Paul says something similar to this. Um, it's Romans 5, back there, Carol, verse 3. He says, we can rejoice, too. Remember when, when, when the apostles left the Sanhedrin, what were they doing? Rejoicing. Flogged, beaten. Persecuted, suffering, they left rejoicing. Paul says, we can rejoice too. When we run into problems and trials, for we know. Not only does God cause all things to work together for good, but we know that they help us develop endurance. Some of you, you're on the threshold right now. You've got problems. You've got trials. You've got tribulation. You may be suffering for the cause of Christ. You're standing on the threshold of that. Some of you may already be into that. And you're wondering, God, what are you doing with this? God may be in the midst right now of developing endurance in you. That's a good thing. We need endurance. Without it, you know what happens? We just give up. We cave. Okay, I'll never ever say the name Jesus again. Okay, okay, I'll never ever testify to anything that Jesus has done in my life. We need endurance. That no matter what happens, I'm going to keep on keeping on. So some of you, God is just saying, okay, I want to use this to develop a little endurance in you. But that's not all. When we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us in develop endurance. And once you kind of get endurance, guess what? God takes you to the next level. He adds to that. He kind of increases and he multiplies and says, I'm going to develop strength of character. How many of you need a dose of strength of character? Yeah, that's part of what God's doing. He's using that not to destroy you, not to abandon you, Not to steal your blessings, but to build, to develop something in you. Endurance, strong character. But that's not all. Because he said, you know what, when you get that endurance, you go on and you get that strong character, it says, and character strengthens our confident hope. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. That's what the early church experienced in the midst of all of that persecution, in the midst of that suffering. God was causing the church to spread. He was causing the message to grow more and more. And at the same time, God was also developing endurance, strong character, and hope in those people. We need those things just as much today as they did Back then. And again, one of the greatest hopes that you and I have came through intense suffering. When Jesus met with his disciples for that final time, he's kind of giving them a precursor of what's going to happen. And he took that bread and he said, this is my body, figuratively. But he said, literally here in a couple of hours, it's going to be broken For you, for many, he says, every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, he lifted it up, he gave thanks to God, and he said, drink from this, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. He said, every time you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And remember a couple of hours later, he was nailed to the cross, the spear was thrust through his side, blood and water flowed out, his body had been broken, his blood had been shed through intense suffering. What did God do with that? Turned it around. This is the greatest example of hope that we have. And God did it through intense suffering, pain, persecution of his son as an example to us. Now again, some of you, maybe not all of you, but maybe some of you are just in a place right now where it feels intense, it feels hopeless, you feel overwhelmed, you feel overcome. Don't give up. Some of you are just on that threshold and God wants to do something that's just gonna bring you to this place of confident hope in him. Don't abandon that. Press endure be strong and courageous amen let's stand together this morning father we just again thank you for again just this example that through the breaking of his body the shedding of his blood that god you took a situation that seemed to the disciples in those days god just a, a an act of absolute horror It seemed to rob them of their confidence in you. It seemed to rob them of their hope in you and what Jesus came to do. And yet, God, unbeknownst to them, this was all part of your plan. And God, how you were going to take that, and God, you were going to use that to once again just bring forth great hope, the greatest hope known to mankind. So this morning, Father, as we just pause and again, we partake and we remember his broken body and his shed blood, God, I just pray for people here this morning that may be in that place where they're just feeling kind of hopeless, maybe overwhelmed, overcome by whatever this morning, that no matter what that is, no matter how great that may feel to them, that through the broken body, the shed blood, you have overcome the greatest enemy of all, and that is death. Nothing we're going through is more powerful or more final than death. And yet, God, you overcame death. So that tells us that you can overcome anything lesser. So this morning, God, as we may stand in that threshold, Father, just again, help us to remember and to know that we know that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And God, we just stand and we press in. That is our confession. That is our profession this morning. We just again thank you for the example you've given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.